HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we return to our annual trend show with Michael Whiteman. As the vaccine gets widely distributed, he looks forward to tell us what's going to be happening in the food world. What will stay, what will be changed forever, and why having less restaurants might just be a good thing. On today's episode, I'm also joined by my wonderful co-host and longtime brother, Darren Bresnitz, as we interview Michael together. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on HRN. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. I'm the other half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Michael, so good to see you. Hello again. Michael, I, I think this is our ninth trend show with you. And, you know, we took last year off. And wouldn't you know it, you take one year off and the whole world falls apart. So well, I thought I thought you were just uh, ignoring me on purpose because you were getting bored. No, no. I mean, uh, no, never. But um, <laughs> COVID has saved us from the question of how did we how did we do last year? Because nothing works. Um, and I think like for any of you who have not had the pleasure of listening to this, um, we do an annual trend show with Michael. Um, you can go to Baum and Whiteman and you can get their trend report. If you want to read ahead, please do so. If not, if you want to go back and check old predictions, please do so. Or listen to old episodes. You can. Um, why don't we just start at the beginning and just say, you know, writing a trend report at the beginning of the end of the pandemic. Um, is interesting. So what went into your mindset um, and, and how do you think uh, dining is going to be different um, this year and in the following years? Well, first of all, um, writing a, a, a trend report at the end of the beginning of uh, COVID is better uh, than writing a trend report at the end of the end. <laughs> so, um, it wasn't quite a religious experience. The, uh, the whole world is turned upside down, as you know. Uh, some of us have even moved from uh, New York to places uh, like Louisiana uh, for some unexplained reason. Uh, and the rest of us have been looking out our windows 
and, uh, and not doing a hell of a lot of anything, uh, except um, eating, drinking, and, and largely having a good time. Uh, what's, what's, what's happened is that consumers have changed their behavior quite a bit, as you would imagine, uh, because they're uh, locked in at home. Uh, and they're not where they would normally be, which is to say they're not in their offices, uh, they're not on vacation, uh, they're not in college, uh, and they're not, uh, for the most part, uh, feeling free. But uh, how they behaved at home has changed uh, rather dramatically uh, because, uh, number one, uh, they've rediscovered the joys and pleasures of sitting around the dinner table together. Uh, we're, we're no longer leading uh, the fractured lives that we used to leave, where, live where um, you ate at one time and I ate at another time and the kids ate at a third time uh, uh, and, uh, and half of the occasions weren't at home at all. Uh, now uh, we're eating home more, we're eating with our families, uh, who knows? We might like to be. We might like to get to like each other again, uh, and we're cooking at home uh, far more frequently, uh, and and enjoying it. Uh, people are getting into cooking. Uh, they're getting into exploring new recipes. Uh, they're getting into exploring a, a lot of new ethnic foods uh, that they're learning to cook at home or they're ordering in. Uh, and getting a taste of the flavor and then deciding that they'd like to cook at home. Uh, there's an interesting uh, group of statistics. Uh, at the end of 2019, 75% uh, of all of the eating and drinking occasions in our country uh, took place in the home. 75%. Uh, that means 25% were eaten somewhere else. Uh, at the end of 2020, the number jumped to 83%. Uh, now you may you may say go to, to go from 75 to 83 is uh, doesn't sound like it's an earth-shaking uh, leap, uh, but if you multiply it by the number of eating occasions in the country, uh, you get hundreds and hundreds of meals, millions of meals that have been transferred from eating out uh, to eating home. Uh, will that continue uh, after COVID? Oh, the numbers will come down again, uh, but they won't come down to where they were for quite some time, if maybe ever, uh, because uh, we've learned to uh, to enjoy uh, standing by the stove and stirring and cooking um, and and eating new food. So I think there's a, there's a permanent change there, uh, and uh, that uh, all happens at the expense of uh, restaurants, of course. Let's talk about those restaurants because I think there is a huge understanding of the restaurant industry that happened in the last year for people who may have never thought about labor costs or where people get paid or inequality and the amount of restaurants and how prices are not really sustainable, um, how the federal, you know, how the independent restaurant was it really organized into a cohesive type of union or membership uh, before the bottom fell out, despite many people in the industry saying the bottom's been gone for years. So what do you think is going to happen with 
And I'll say the independent restaurant industry, not the big chains or things like that, in the next year or so, and while a lot have already fallen, some estimate 100,000 restaurants, for those that survive, for those that intentionally or not were set up for a COVID-like situation, how do they come out on the other side better, stronger? You know, what is going out to eat look like when when we get out of the pandemic? Uh, you just asked a very complicated question that requires uh, a whole group of answers. I'm going to be long-winded until you interrupt me. That's fine. I mean, it's, uh, it's I think understanding the complications of it is really important because it is going to dictate probably the rest of our conversation. Okay. So we know that a couple of hundred thousand restaurants have gone out of business uh, in the last year. That doesn't mean that uh, in short order, the country will be missing all those restaurants because uh, the ownership of the restaurants went out of business and disappeared, but the facilities remain. So uh, as the economy improves, and it's happening right now, by the way, as the economy improves, uh, various entrepreneurs who have access to cash and capital uh, will reopen those restaurants with another concept and another name and another ownership. So uh, we're not going to lose all of those restaurants. We just will lose the entrepreneurs who owned them in the first place. So that's there's a mortality of people, but not necessarily a mortality of all of the restaurants. Uh, last year was a uh, a perfect storm. Uh, or an imperfect storm, if you wish, uh, for the restaurant industry, because all the chickens came home to roost. Uh, it's been uh, a tenuous business, especially for independent operators for uh, many years. Uh, there have been too many restaurants uh, opening, uh, chasing not enough customers. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, the independent operators have been hanging by a thread in the first place. On top of that, there has been, as a result of um, the election last year, uh, there has been increased focus on inequality. And the restaurant industry is one of those places where inequality is extremely rampant. Uh, owners, in theory, make a lot of money. Uh, waiters and waitresses, uh, in theory, uh, make a, a good living, uh, and if they're working at a good restaurant, indeed they do. Um, and the people who do the grunt work in the back of the house um, work for, let's say, uh, sub-poverty wages. Uh, in some parts of the country, if you're a waitress in Louisiana, uh, you probably get $2.13 an hour right now uh, for waiting on tables. And uh, if it rains tonight, uh, what well, you've got is the two thousand and two two dollars and thirteen cents uh, per hour, unless uh, and and you get it for an eight-hour shift unless you're sent home early. So uh, the people who are working in restaurants uh, are more tenuous in their lives than people who own them, uh, and the people who are working in the back of the house. Uh, who don't get tips, who only work for minimum wage largely, uh, are primarily people of color. 
people who work in the front of the house and get tips and make fairly decent wages are not people of color. Uh, and uh, that recognition has, has suddenly uh, bubbled up to the surface uh, because of uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, because of the uh, uh, rampant levels of, of discrimination and uh, foul language that came from, uh, as Joe Biden calls, uh, the other guy. Uh, and so it, it's become a big social issue. And people who are going out to eat uh, are reading all about the plight, not just of the restaurateurs, but of the plight of the, of the workers there. Uh, we will end up with fewer restaurants. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, and I want to, just to say on that, um, over the years, you have talked about the cannibalization of restaurants. So when um, Fred Siegel opened up a restaurant inside of their their shopping center or the uprising of Fast Casual, and you've been ringing this bell for years that there's just too many restaurants that just it, it's not sustainable um although it's not popular to be championing that in in any means because that's someone's investment in, in livelihood um you do go on to say that fewer restaurants is a good thing um why is that uh, it, it's a good thing for several reasons uh, number one it's um Restaurants are going to be put out of business because minimum wages are going to go up. Uh, restaurants have been surviving. And uh, by the way, people in the restaurant industry hate me for saying this. Restaurants, uh, both large and small, uh, have been in, uh, uh, existing in this country because of the government subsidy. And it's, a, it's an invisible government subsidy. That waitress who makes $2.13 an hour uh, is probably on welfare. Uh, probably her family is on welfare. Uh, the dishwasher in the kitchen who's making $7.50 an hour is also on welfare. Uh, and all of these transfer payments from uh, the government to people who are making minimum wage, which is really sub-poverty wage, uh, in the form of welfare payments, these transfer payments are a subsidy to the restaurant industry. Uh, if restaurants charged what they should be charged, charging for, say, a hamburger based on the cost, real cost of the labor, which is uh, what the restaurant is paying now, plus what the government pays the worker, then a, a, an $8 hamburger might be a $15 hamburger. That would be the real price. Uh, now, depending on your politics, you can say, well, it's okay that the government subsidizes it because these people um, have a job. Uh, the other is that you're paying, when you go to a restaurant, a hidden tax that you're not aware of. Uh, and you might not be paying it so willingly if you knew that you could uh, pay that same number rather as a tax to the government, uh, to the employer of the unemployed employee underpaid employee. So uh, if you raise prices to what they should be, uh, you may diminish the number of people who go out to eat. And if you diminish the number of people who go out to eat, then of course you'll have fewer restaurants. Uh, who loses? Um, 
independent restaurants largely, but restaurant chains as well. Uh, if we watched uh, dozens of chains go chapter 11 or chapter 7 uh, in the last year, uh, and not small ones either. So uh, the uh, the people who are on the, on the edge economically uh, will disappear. Uh, the rest of the restaurant industry, um, one hopes, will be more efficient. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it's, it's great. The it's it's such a unbelievable um, mind melt to think about that my burger is subsidized by by welfare. Um, one of one of the interesting untetherings of these restaurants closing is chefs and chefs as brands, um, and them finding alternative revenue streams. Um, one of the things uh, that Darren wanted to discuss was about the rise of that. The, um, the notion of chefs being cut loose from their restaurants uh, is having a, a, a big effect. Uh, and I, I, I'd like to talk about the, uh, the positive side of that uh, rather than the negative side of that. The negative side being that you have chefs who are out of work. Uh, the positive side is that the whole community of chefs uh, not just in this country, but around the world, uh, has expanded uh, and become emotionally a lot more connective and supportive. So uh, out-of-work chefs are being given gigs in uh, other people's restaurants, uh, A, in order to keep them busy, uh, and B, uh, so the other restaurants can have reasons to promote themselves so that uh, customers will come and, and eat even if it's just sitting outside, uh, or uh, get on their uh, smartphones and order this uh, chef's food uh, to be delivered. Uh, so uh, restaurants are becoming hosts to out-of-work chefs. A uh, large number of out-of-work chefs and cooks and uh, who used to work in restaurants are actually working from their homes. And uh, they... Uh, have found a community of people uh, via Instagram and via the internet. And they may only be cooking one item uh, out of their kitchen or two or three items out of their kitchen. And they may only be cooking 50 portions uh, a day, uh, but they've found the constituency uh, that I think will continue with them uh, as a matter of loyalty if they, if they like their food. Uh, and uh, we're, we're seeing uh, a lot of uh, other kinds of collaborations. Uh, for example, uh, and, and I really like this one. Uh, it's an example of, of, of others, but, it, but it's a good one. Uh, we have in Brooklyn here, a, 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 basically it's a website uh, that allows people to buy soup in a mason jar. Uh, the soup can come from restaurant A, and it comes packaged with a loaf of fancy bread from bakery B, and the package is delivered to a wine or liquor store near where you live, where you can pick it up. 
you've prepaid for it. So the package is there waiting for you. And uh, if it all works well, uh, you'll buy a bottle of wine. So now we have three entities that uh, used to be three separate businesses who are now collaborating together and forming a kind of community. Uh, I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful thing that probably will continue in some form or another. Uh, there's a uh, there's a bar in San Francisco uh, that uh, is not able to open because uh, you can't you can't sit in the bar and you're not allowed to deliver. Um, as of last month, you weren't. Now you are uh, booze to the street uh, without meals. And here's a bar uh, that only is a bar and doesn't have any food. Uh, but there's a breakfast place next door. Uh, it's open for breakfast and lunch. And uh, they've collaborated on a common outdoor seating. And you can order uh, eggs Benedict or steak and eggs uh, from the, the diner coffee shop. Uh, or if you want to, you can order uh, a cocktail from the cocktail bar place if you order the food. So there's synergy here of, of the two separate businesses uh, combining to uh, increase both of theirs. And uh, we're wishing uh, lots of examples like this going on around the world. It's very heartening.
This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select whole food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Are you longing for a trip to Mexico? Do you want to taste mezcal straight out of a wood-fired clay pot still at a palenque in Puebla? Well, we can't help you with that, but we can offer the next best thing, agave road trip in a box. This set of 10 samples of rare heritage agave spirits will transport your heart with the warmth of liquid Mexico. Get your set at agavefestival.org and then join agave road trip podcast co-host Chava and me, Lou, for an online tasting agavefestival.org is the break you've been looking for or as close as you're going to get. You know, um, I want to go back to what you said about chefs as brands and connecting directly with people at home because especially in Los Angeles, I've seen a lot of chefs either lose or leave a line cook position or part of a, of a restaurant that can no longer sustain them and then open up their own pop-up or going to a commissary inspired more by their personal story um, and their, you know, their more personal cooking roots. I think of someone like a chef, Rashida Holmes, who wound up losing her cooking job, but then uh, opened up Bridgetown Roadie and is cooking uh, Bahamian flavors, um, you know, from, from her family. But I think you're seeing a new spin on what happened in 2009 with the rise of the food truck, right? Which is a lower bar to entry, but a more personal connection. Um, but also the tale is the oldest time cooking the food from your family, what you know, to survive. Uh, there, uh, let's call them all pop-ups for the moment. Sure. Let's call them pop-ups. <laughs> As a good allegory to the 2009 food truck. We'll call them pop-ups. Correct. Uh, They're pop-ups without food trucks. uh, And a food truck is a fairly expensive piece of equipment. And and if you don't have money in the time of COVID, uh, (laughs) you don't start a food truck. Uh, Which is uh, is funny because back when those started, those were seen as the cheap options. But now the food truck game has leveled up so much. You still need six figures to get in. Correct. So uh, chefs who are out of work are, as I I said earlier, popping up in other people's restaurants. 
Uh, they're popping up in uh, farmers markets. Uh, they're popping up on street corners uh, with uh, with outdoor barbecues. Uh, they're popping up in front of, uh, for example, the the one I just gave you in San Francisco. They're popping up in front of bars uh, that, or in the backyard of a bar that doesn't have food, uh, so that uh, they can earn a living. Uh, and some of these pop-ups uh, are evolving into uh, full-time gigs at, at real restaurants uh, where, uh, to, sh- to cite uh, a, a simple example, uh, somebody who uh, cooks um, great breakfasts uh, might find a restaurant that's open for lunch and dinner uh, that has spare capacity in the kitchen in the morning. And they take over the kitchen and have a, a breakfast restaurant. Uh, and now you're getting uh, two restaurants in the same location sharing costs. Uh, that, again, goes back to my idea of building community. Uh, and by the way, there's, there's a fair amount of this uh, going on. Uh, I just looked at one in, uh, in London uh, where uh, somebody is taking over uh, a restaurant in the morning and just making bagels. I love yeah. it. I'll go there. Okay. Yeah, and then and then uh, uh, she folds her tent uh, in mid morning, and the restaurant takes over its kitchen and does all its prep for for lunch and dinner. Uh, so uh, some people are finding permanent places. Let's call them kitchens within kitchens. Uh, some people are uh, discovering that their pop ups are successful enough that they can uh, move into a vacant. A brick and mortar restaurant uh, where a landlord is willing to make a deal in order to get somebody into a vacant space. Uh, and some people uh, are cooking, as you said, uh, their uh, ethnic cuisine from their own kitchens. Uh, and they start out selling uh, to people in their own families and then their own communities. Uh, and then word gets around and uh, you order on Instagram or uh, on your smartphone. Uh, and these people are, uh, are, are now have a business out of their kitchen. Uh, in recent years, that's been mostly illegal in most states. Uh, and that has been relaxed for COVID so that people can earn a living. And I think uh, those rules will, will probably loosen in the future and stay loose. So, uh, we're seeing lots of uh, inventive ways for uh, chefs to uh, to produce their food. Yeah, you know, a lot of other restaurants that are tapping into a cultural movement um, are coming out of, you know, what happened with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter movement. And you're seeing a... Uh, real rebalancing an important one of seeing more African and Afro-American cooking and black chefs um, getting their, their due that is long overdue. And you've seen that with uh, both programming on TV restaurants that have been opening, but also a conversation and examining, you know, what sometimes people think is a monolithic culture of food is extremely diverse, extremely important and if you really dig deep, has really shaped American cuisine. Um, can you talk a little bit about the the important shifting focus 
on the chefs and the movement behind this? Sure. Uh, that uh, is also part of that perfect storm of, of COVID last year and the recognition of inequality uh, and the uh, the rise uh, of Black Lives Matter. Uh, and the, the uh, I have to say the rise of Black Lives Matter uh, has been a, a galvanizing movement, again, thanks to uh, the former guy in the White House uh, who um, tugged at the, the liberal heartstrings of the country into recognizing that there's been this level of inequality for so long. Uh, and so uh, there's been a, a, a big swelling of uh, publicity uh, in support of, of black chefs. Uh, largely, we haven't recognized that uh, how many black chefs there are because they haven't had their own restaurants and they haven't had their own restaurants for all the reasons of inequality that, that we know, including the difficulty of getting financing, which would probably at the top of the list. Uh, so uh, they're now getting uh, both uh, an increase in visibility and an increase in financial support. Um, and uh, you see uh, all of the uh, food and beverage websites uh, in uh, municipalities around the country uh, now listing uh, restaurants that are owned by black chefs or restaurants where black chefs are cooking uh, or where uh, a black chef is the sommelier. Uh, I, mean, uh, I mean, where a restaurant has a, a, a black sommelier. Uh, and um this is something that uh hasn't been recognized and now is 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 being hyper recognized if you if you want to use that word along with um a number of the ch the chins uh and changes um i think with people picking up home cooking and i'm speaking for my own uh my own experience is a new war on waste which you discuss, uh, and the idea of how I used to go out to eat, all the plastic and all the garbage that came with it, um, leftovers, et cetera. And now that we are stuck at home and have gotten into menu planning, it's just been like, oh, wow, I really don't think those habits are going to go back to that. What have you seen um, both in home cooking trends, but also how does it apply to restaurants they're already um, like doing economizing on space with the morning restaurant concept and our uh, afternoon concept. But where are you seeing on how they're tackling this ongoing problem? You mean you, you mean the war on waste problem? Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's another thing that came to the fore during COVID, isn't it? Uh, and uh, the reason it came to the fore uh, during COVID is that uh, we all increased the amount of food that we order in, um, and we increased it. We increased it radically, um, and with that comes, uh, as as we all know, an excess of packaging of packages within packages within boxes within boxes with uh, uh, all kinds of uh, throwaways uh, that are clogging up uh, our garbage and creating an, an ecological mess. Uh, and so there, there's uh, only now really beginning uh, to be a movement among the people who create packaging uh, for how to diminish uh, all of the 
superfluous stuff that gets sent to your house every time you order something in. Uh, will it go away? No, it, it won't go away. Uh, it can be diminished by quite a bit. Uh, and uh, what, uh, what the utensils and what the dishes are made of uh, is now under uh, great scrutiny because uh, some, some of it lasts for an infinite number of years. Some of it says it's recyclable, but it's only recyclable if it's recycled, and usually it just goes in the garbage mail. Uh, so uh, I think in the years ahead, uh, because of the awareness of how much gets thrown away in this country, uh, you will see a greater attention on the part of manufacturers uh, to minimize waste. Uh, there's been at the same time uh, an attack or at least an awareness on the amount of food that we throw away. Uh, it's been estimated that somewhere between a third and, and a half of the uh, food that's grown in this country uh, never makes it to the dinner plate for one reason or another. Uh, whether it's because uh, it's left in the field because the prices aren't high enough uh, or because the government subsidizes uh, the use of corn so we can burn it in our fuel tanks instead of eat it uh, or because we're just generally profligate and uh, throw food away when we don't have to. Uh, I think people who've been cooking at home during COVID uh, who've been aware of uh, how much things cost suddenly, uh, are also paying more attention to um, what they used to throw away because it was a little brown or a little limp, uh, or uh, it looked like a leftover and we'd, oh, our house doesn't have leftovers. Uh, well, now they're using uh, leftover food to make leftovers. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so I, I, I think in, in a way, We've become more efficient, uh, and and I think that uh, that provides a level of self gratification. Getting back to self exploration, thinking about expanded flavor profiles for so many people who have now coming up, been putting up maybe you know anywhere from fifteen to eighteen to twenty one meals a week in their in their own kitchen. Um, it was interesting to see that you are talking about global flavor, f global flavors of the world starting to get into people's kitchens and then becoming more standard. Um, where something like living in South Southern California, tagine is something that's a little bit more familiar to me, and same with like a chili crunch. But yes. you know, jerk seasoning or uh, bear beret, which is this incredible. Ethiopian spice. Um, why are people reaching for these types of flavors and are they here to stay or are they just of the moment? No, they're not of the moment. Uh, it used to be when you went uh, shopping in the supermarket for spices, uh, the spices were arranged alphabetically and they started with an East and they ended up with something with a thing. Uh, and uh, so you got a bottle of a little jar of tarragon or a jar of cumin or a large thing of uh, black pepper uh, or a, a jar of, of coriander. Uh, 
the people who uh, cook around the world very rarely use just those spices one at a time. Uh, they usually use uh, in conjunction with other spices. Uh, for example, uh, we think of curry as something that comes from a jar and looks yellow. Uh, but that that curry powder is is made up of uh, anywhere between six and twelve different other spices that have been roasted, ground, and combined uh, according to each person's uh, individual recipe or each company's recipe, which is why no two curries taste alike. Uh, so curry powder is something that we also reach for on the shelf next to the uh, cumin. Uh, which, by the way, is one of the spices in the curry powder. Uh, the more we uh, have been eating home, the more ethnic food we've been eating because uh, we, 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 we just demand the variety. And so we're, we're learning to understand what those flavors are, but not how to make them. Uh, and most ethnic food, Indian, Chinese, uh, Mexican, if it's real Mexican, uh, fairly complicated. Uh, the list of ingredients goes on if you look at a recipe forever. Um, but if you want to, if you want your chicken to taste Mexican, and you're just roasting a chicken tonight, uh, you can buy from a high quality spice make, uh, maker uh, a a bottle of berber, uh, as you called it, if you're meaty Ethiopian. Um, and it's got chilies and cardamom and cinnamon and ginger and nutmeg and allspice and coriander in it. You could make it at home. Um, in fact, the New York Times ran up a, a piece just last week uh, about these spice mixtures you can make at home. But uh, for those of us who uh, <laughs> like to stay sane, uh, we can buy high quality spice mixes like Berbera, uh, like tahine, as you said. Uh, um, for the listeners who don't happen to live in California, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it, it's a mixture of uh, dehydrated lime and chili peppers and sea salt, and sometimes with sugar. Um, and uh, you can rub it on fish. You can uh, uh, dip your cocktail glass in it and make a margarita. Uh, it's great sprinkled on fruit. And it's got a, a big citrusy, spicy kind of overtone. It's perfect. Uh, uh, and so there, there's za'atar from uh, Israel and Lebanon and Syria. Uh, there's uh, dukkah from uh, uh, Egypt, uh, which is wonderful. It's a, a mix of ground sesame seeds and nuts. Oh, by and kumul, cumin, coriander, and fennel, which, by the way, also are in, are in curry powder. Uh, so uh, we're now seeing... Uh, these spice mixtures available and they're showing up on shelves at home. I have to say that when you see them in a supermarket, uh, you're likely to find that the first ingredient is salt and the second ingredient is pepper. Uh, so uh, you're not really getting uh, value for money, uh, but there are, and you can go online and, and see them. Uh, there are uh, really good spice mix mixers uh, who are selling online. And uh, you can use them either to make an authentic dish uh, or you can use it just to flavor your own. You know, if you want your, if you want your, uh, uh, your, if you want your hamburger to taste Korean tonight, uh, 
you can buy, uh, in this case, it would be a liquid, uh, but you can, you can buy uh, liquid Korean seasoning mixes and sprinkle them on your hamburger and suddenly you've got a whole new dimension. So we want to make sure that we get to the buzzwords, probably yeah. our favorite section. Um, I want to start with the stay-at-homers opting for better coffees. I am beyond guilty of getting into pour-overs uh, and like taking the time to actually learn it. You talk about better paraphernalia. Uh, what tips do you have for me uh, on to up my home brewing game? <laughs> um, well, if you want to, if you want to uh, really get into it, uh, you would buy green coffee beans and roast your own. Uh, you could do that at home. Uh, you have to spend some time learning how. Uh, and you'd probably burn a lot of beans until you did, uh, and your kitchen would uh, <laughs> your kitchen would smell a bit. Uh, <laughs> but if 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 that's what you really wanted to do and get really into coffee, you'd buy green coffee beans, uh, which you can buy on mail order, and roast them. You can buy a small roaster uh, again uh, on 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 the web. Uh, if you didn't want to do that, then you would buy whole beans from somebody uh, who you trust. Uh, and it might be somebody who roasts them locally, and you might be able to walk down or drive to the place and pick up freshly roasted beans. And then grind the beans one portion at a time. So, uh, And you would have to figure out how, how many beans make a portion for you. Uh, and you would weigh them out in uh, in milligrams, uh, and uh, you would you would have a high quality grinder, and then you would uh, get a a, a a filter coffee like a Chemex uh, or a Melita filter, uh, and you would get the water to exactly the right temperature, uh, which is somewhere below boiling, by the way, uh, and you would. Uh, spend a lot of time pouring little dribs and drabs of water into the coffee grounds until uh, you got yourself a, a cup of uh, freshly ground, freshly brewed coffee that if you didn't have it on a warm surface would be tepid. <laughs> uh, so that's the that's the process. Are you willing to do that? Is that what you're trying to do? I, I don't think anyone do. is. No. I mean, we can try. All right, Darren, what, what buzzword do you have? Um, well, I live really close to the San Gabriel Valley out here and I'm a huge fan of steamed rice noodle wraps, which I was excited to see on the trends for next year. Where are these popping up and why are they becoming more important? Um, it, well, first of all, um, these rice noodle wraps that you make reference to are steamed, uh, so they're soft and floppy. They're not like uh, a, uh, a burrito wrap that, or a tortilla wrap that we're uh, used to thinking of. Uh, they have a, they have a different texture and a different uh, set of flavors. Uh, they're gluten free, uh, so people have an attraction to them. Uh, and they're popping up where there are large Asian communities. Mm -hmm. San Gabriel, you know, is, is Asian community from one, end, from one end to the other. Uh, and uh, they're popping up in, in New York as well. 
and uh, they're they're good as a snack. Uh, you uh, you can put it on a plastic plate and walk around with a, a fork and eat it. Uh, they're good uh, eaten uh, on a plate with a knife and fork and sitting down. Um, and they hold up uh, under delivery conditions. So, uh, and 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 what goes into the wrap uh, is up to the person who's selling it. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's another way of having an adventure, uh, and and finding a whole other uh, new dimension of Chinese cuisine. Um, you're also starting to see things like chickpeas or other high protein vegetables pop up in unexpected places, as people start to re-examine their relationship with meat and where they get their protein. Can we expect to see? you know, chocolate with chickpeas or other things that are sneaking in protein in unexpected places? Uh, Well, the answer to that question is yes. Uh, That's the short answer. The longer answer is is something more complex. Uh, And it has to do with uh, people uh, gravitating towards plant-based foods. Uh, which sounds like a good thing. Well, you know, we'll, we'll kill fewer cows and there'll be far less uh, cow farts polluting the atmosphere. Uh, and, uh, and that, uh, you know, cows have a lot to do with global warming. Uh, so, you know, it, it all sounds very good and we'll all we'll live on plants. Uh, the issue here is that uh, these plant-based foods, which are largely made of chickpeas and soybeans uh, these days uh, are highly processed. Uh, we don't really know that they're better for you. Uh, in fact, uh, we don't know that they're good for you at all, uh, but we certainly don't know that they're better for you than uh, uh, something that used to walk on four legs. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the increasing use, let's let's use chickpeas as, as, a, as a whipping a whipping person can't call it a whipping boy anymore. <laughs> as, a, as a whip, as a whipping person, uh, you know, chickpeas. You know, we we used to seeding them in, in hummus, and we're used to seeing them in. But they're now, uh, if you go to the supermarket, you see the chickpea pasta, um, and you'll find them in all kinds of plant-based foods. Uh, it sounds good until you realize that. Uh, the increasing demand for chickpeas suddenly makes it makes it a great big agribusiness, and so uh, you now you now have uh, this vision uh, in your head of miles and miles and rows and rows of chickpeas uh, being sprayed with insecticides and artificial fertilizers and being harvested uh, in order to make this plant-based foods that's supposed to be better for you and save the earth. Uh, it's not clear that it does. And uh, uh, this whole business needs to be investigated. But in the meantime, yes, uh, a lot more chickpeas and a lot more plant-based foods. Well, Michael, we wanna thank you for another wonderful trend report. Uh, Again, not easy to write in the face of uncertainty, but there's so much more in here that we didn't get to uh, like every year. Where can people go and find and read it and check out last year's report and contact you um, for deeper insights and possibly their own report? How do people find you? You go to, uh, well, there's a couple of ways. You can go to Michael Whiteman, 
and trends in Google and, and you'll find me. Uh, the other is uh, you can search for our company, which is Baum, B-A-U-M, whiteman.com. And uh, that will take you to our website where there's um, uh, more about trends than you'll ever want to know. Amazing. Well, listen, we want to thank you so much for being a part of this and for coming back. And we promise we will never take a year off again because <laughs> obviously we did and look what happened. And we just can't afford to do it uh, at all. So No, no, the world, de- the world depends on you guys. <laughs> yeah, well, we depend on you to tell us what we can expect and you know where we can buy our futures on different food products. So now I need to go call my broker for uh, rice and chickpeas and uh, cumin and things like that. Um, but listen, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll be eating pizza again together very soon. And, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing where we are a year from now with food restaurants. It, to be honest, I would be happy just to be eating out at this point. Um, but listen, thank you again. I, I think we, I think we all will. We're all, we all hunger for, uh, for company. Uh, yes, we do. We're going to tag out on a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes. Greg, always a pleasure. Kong, thank you so much. Jeet, the whole network. Uh, we'll see you next week. Have a good have a good Sunday. Lost.
We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.